Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening online at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our relationships with the land, how we, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I'm at Ignatius, Ignatius Jesuit Center in Guelph. It's a big community farm. Lots of small farm plots around here. My partner has a plot. Some good friends of mine have plots here. Recently, uh, led a retreat weekend with Greg Kennedy and Lorraine Roy. It's a couple episodes back. I interviewed them. You can listen to that if you want on the website, to knowtheland.com. But today I'm here... Well, let me just describe where I am. I'm in this little ephemeral wetland area. Uh, one of the fields to my north, they, they sort of there's a big slope that leads down here, and then I guess in the south there's a, a few more fields that sort of come down this way. To the west, uh, it's a bit deeper, a bit wetter. And to the east, it sort of dries out. And I'm under the soon-to-be shade of a massive, massive, uh, probably crack willow, Salix vigilis. There's some tons of grapevines down here. Red osier dogwood. Some grasses. Garlic mustard, buckthorn some sort of buttercup, maybe a Virginia water leaf in some spots, lots of mosses. Got the recorder set up on a split rail fence, holding it in place. As my previous setup didn't quite work, I'd recorded almost half my show and realized that as the radio sort of blew in the wind as it dangled from a wire, it had stopped itself from recording, but it's recording now for sure. This week I wanted to talk about a book, Baptiste Morizot's Ways of Being Alive. It's out on Polity Press or Polity Books. Uh, Baptiste Morizot is a contemporary French philosopher and wildlife tracker. A few months ago, I interviewed my friend, uh, I guess it was a conversation with my friend Julian Fisher, doing his PhD in philosophy, I think maybe at the University of Victoria. And he was going to be here for this show, and we were going to discuss this new Baptiste Morizot book, because last time we discussed his previous book, On the Animal Trail. But Julian has a presentation at a conference in Estonia in a week and a half, so he, he just wanted to focus on that. And maybe we'll get the chance to talk about this another time. But what I like about these books is, is Baptiste Morizot 
is approachable. I don't know much about philosophy. I, I'm, I know some pop philosophers, but not many. There runs a chipmunk. And and my my context for philosophy is is not superficial, but not not so in depth. Maybe rooted like a cedar, eastern white cedar, you know, just below the surface. That's it. And I read slow when it comes to philosophers. I I get inspired. And I have to put the book down, go for a walk, or um, some concepts I don't understand right away, so I have to read them again. But Baptiste Morisot's books have been approachable, and I, I read them, and I enjoy them, and I'm getting a lot from them. Whereas some folks, it takes me a long time to get anything. But his concepts and the ways he presents ideas is really helpful. And I also wanted to note that for this book, Ways of Being Alive, it's translated by Andrew Brown, and any time a translator is involved, it's hard. It's going to be hard. And... This book is still easygoing. I am so grateful for the work that the translator has done to make this book welcoming to someone like me who does not have a philosophical education, as many other people will. I think you can hear in the background the American toads. They're going to be a part of our conversation as well today. I saw some goldfinches, some black-capped chickadees. They're also welcome to our conversation today. The red squirrel, the chipmunk, the willow, the wind. I'm also inviting them to our conversation today. And I think it's apropos that they're part of the conversation because that's what Baptiste Morisot is talking about in his book. How do we get back into a good conversation, back into community with the world around us in a serious way? I'm just going to read from the back because I think it, it, it's a good primer. The ecological crisis is a very real crisis for the many species that face extinction. But it is also a crisis of sensibility, that is, a crisis in our relationships with other living beings. We have grown accustomed to dreaming other living beings as a material backdrop for the drama of human life. The animal world is regarded as part of nature, juxtaposed to the world of human beings who pursue their aims independently of other species. Baptiste Morisot argues that the time has come for us to jettison this nature-human dualism and rethink our relationships with other living beings. Animals are not part of a separate natural world. They are cohabitants of the earth, with whom we share a common ancestry, the enigma of being alive and the responsibility of living decent lives together. By accepting our identity as living beings and reconnecting with our own animal nature, we can begin to change our relationships with other animals, seeing them not as inferior life forms, but as living creatures who have different ways of being alive.
It's a good summary. Of course, it doesn't get the nuance of the book and the complexities and the details and the relationships that Baptiste Morisot is drawing on. But I do agree with this premise, and I think anybody who probably listens to this show agrees with this premise. But something I really like is he challenges us not only to just, you know, pay attention to nature, to notice it, to name it, and to learn the complex relationships, but to take that next step and be part of the community. I'll get into more of what I mean by part of that community, but I just want to give a framework of how I'm seeing the situation I'm in now, surrounded by all these other life forms. Maybe it's the influence of the French philosopher, but I feel like we're in a cafe. Here we are at a table, discussing. Maybe there's quiet music playing in the background. There's other people, some on their own, working quietly, some in conversation with friends and lovers. There's people ordering at the counter, people waiting for their orders, people exiting and coming in. All in community, all all understanding a common cultural norms of how to be in a space together in a good way. No one's being too loud, taking over, no one's being obnoxious. No one's flipping tables. We're all practicing and learning and watching and being in a good community together. The American toad and the American red squirrel and the chipmunk and the garlic mustard and the willow and I were here in this cafe together. And you, the listener, you, you, you are here too. There are ways that you are inhabiting this space that no one else is, and we're practicing this together. Let's frame this conversation that way. Think about it in that context, as, as a metaphor. Yeah, actually, as a metaphor. Think of it as a metaphor, because we're not going to frame it. We're going to frame it as actually what's happening. I am in the space of another being, of many other beings, and I need to inhabit this space in a good way as a visitor. That's how I'm going to frame it. I want to start with a part from the introduction that I think really explains a lot of the book. The crisis in our relationships begin with living beings, or with living beings is a crisis of sensibility because the relationships we have grown accustomed to maintaining with living beings are relationships with nature. As the Brazilian anthropologist Eduardo Viveros de Castro explains, we are the heirs of Western modernity and so we think that the main that we maintain relationships of a natural type with the whole world of non-human living beings because any other relationship with them is impossible. There are two types of potential relations in the modern cosmos, either the natural or socio-political. And the socio-political relations are reserved exclusively for humans. Consequently, this implies that we consider other living beings primarily as a backdrop, as a reserve of resources available for production, as a place of healing, or as a prop 
for emotional and symbolic projection. To be merely a backdrop and a prop for projection is to have lost one's own ontological consistency. Something, something loses its ontological consistency when we lose the faculty of paying attention to it as a full being, as something which counts in collective life. When the living world falls outside the field of collective and political attention, outside the field of what is deemed important, then a crisis of sensibility is triggered. That's important. When we pay attention to other living beings, when we allow them back into our consciousness as, as, as shared community members, we have to then change the way we act towards them. We have to listen to them. We have to work to understand their needs. It becomes a lot harder to impose, impose violence on them, to occupy their spaces, to destroy and dismantle their lives and life ways. It's important that we recognize them as alive. And I think that's what that's what Baptiste is on about. He he's he's talking about creating the foundations of a social quality, and maybe maybe not social. He he says geopolitical. So like talking about similar to how different nat nations will interact. In his other book uh, on the animal trail, he talks about diplomacy, practicing a diplomacy with other animals. We have to be diplomats. We have to come together to make agreements or set boundaries. Say, I won't impede here if you won't impede here. It's reminiscent of like the Turo Wampum where I live, an agreement that was made between the Dutch and the Haudenosaunee of the area saying, you know, stay in your lane on the river in your ship and we'll stay in our canoe or you stay in your canoe and we'll stay in our ship and we won't impede on each other we won't impose on each other we won't block each other's ships and we'll flow down this river together we need agreements like that with the world and then we need ways of meeting the conflicts that inevitably arise without violence without dominion without oppression but instead you know striving for a peace striving for nuance and understanding and patience we need to be in good community you know I think naturalists and maybe I've said this already but naturalists need to change the way that we interact with the world we, we see it we name it we can identify them, we can describe them, we may even be able to describe the communities that the animals and other forms of life are a part of. But we don't position ourselves in that community as community members. It's sort of like an atom complex where we're, we're still stuck in that atom phase 
in the biblical sense of like naming and having dominion over we're not coming to the table as 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 shared diners at the table with the world we're coming at it as you know we're carrying all these other life forms to the table to consume and I think Baptiste Morizo is you know acknowledging that we need to change it we need to recognize other life forms as worthwhile And I think we need to recognize other life forms as worthwhile in so many different ways. I think of all the violences that we enact and then we blame them on other things. I've been thinking about buckthorn and garlic mustard a lot. There was a recently a garlic mustard pulls happening in my city. And I still remember the first garlic mustard pulls that they held they would pull the bodies of these other forms of life and lay them on trails, end to end on the trail, four kilometers of the bodies of these other forms of life, one atop the other in long rows. I think of the Ukraine and Russia right now, and I think of these mass graves that they're finding, bodies on bodies in rows, That's not a good geopolitic. That's not a good way of interacting with other members of our community. Even if those other members of the community aren't from here. I'm not from here. I would assume the majority of my listeners aren't from wherever they are. Ancestrally, you know, like their, their, their ancestors came to this place. I think we need to learn how to be in community in good ways and accepting as we would want to be accepted as we need to be accepted with other forms of life as well. I think the ways that we have dominion over the land, how we destroy the land and impede, we wreck habitats, we take them over, we change them, we build our habitats there. Same as, as if colonizers came over and shaped the landscape to look more like Europe, look more like their home, which creates the conditions, the ideal habitats for these European species to come in and take over. The garlic mustard, the buckthorn, the dandelion, the plantain, dame's rocket, whoever else. And I think of the violence that we enact on the land and how if we permit that, if we allow this to happen, the violence that happens on other marginal communities, other marginal non-human communities and other marginal communities. How white folks destroy black and brown bodies. How we criminalize those bodies. We criminalize the bodies of plants. Certain plants are illegal. If they're found, they're torn up and destroyed. Laid out in rows, body on body. Four kilometers down the path. I think of this how we, how, how I keep reading and listening 
to news reports on what's going on in the United States right now where many listeners are to the bodies of women their choices that they can make with their bodies how those choices and those bodies are being criminalized felonized and what the immediate implications are and what the possible implications are in the future possible death penalties you know it's just violence on violence and and if we permit it to happen to other non-human life forms we will permit it to happen to humans as well We, we, we will permit it to happen to ourselves and we permit it to happen to the landscape as a whole. It's, it's zany. I'm going to get back to the book. I can go on and on and on. But I'm going to get back to the book. Because I think that's important. And I think that's what Baptiste Morisot is trying to address. That we need to change the way we, we are in relationship. There's a great part here. And actually I find this inspiring and beautiful. And really uplifting to think about. And it just, it just, it points to this idea that we need each other to help um, our awareness of what's going on. We, we need each other to notice things because we can't notice everything individually. And I appreciate Baptiste noticing here. The significance of eco-fragmentation and extinction has philosophical implications that are not always noted. This fragmentation does not directly originate from productivist and extractivist greed, although this is the contemporary many-faceted aspect of the destruction of habitats, one which requires us to engage in the bitterest of struggles against it. It originates first, first of all, from our blindness to the fact that other living beings inhabit. The crisis in our way of inhabiting amounts to denying others the status of inhabitants. So we need to repopulate in the philosophical sense of making visible the fact that the myriad of life forms that constitute our nurturing environment have always been not a backdrop for our human tribulations, but fully fledged inhabitants of the world. And this is because they they make the world by their presence. The microfauna of soils literally make the forests and fields. The forests and the plant life of the, uh, of the oceans create the breathable atmosphere that nurtures us. The pollinators literally make what we innocently call spring, as if it were a gift from the universe or the sun. No, it is their humming, invisible and planetary, with each year at the end of winter summons into the world the flowers, the fruits, the gifts of the earth, and their immemorial return. Pollinators, bees, birds, are not placed like furniture on the natural and unchanging scenery of the seasons. They make the spring live. Without them, we might have snow melts when the sunshine increases around March, but they would take place in a desert. We would not have the cherry blossoms, nor any other blossom, nor any effect from the cross-fertilization which forms the basis of life cycle of angiosperms. We would only have an endless winter, 
a type of being that makes spring with its own hands, so to speak, isn't just part of the decor, a mere resource. It is an inhabitant, one that enters the political field of the powers with which we will have to negotiate the forms of our common life. The American toads, they're singing the vivaciousness of spring. They're calling in mates. They're singing life into being, you know? The bird I still can't identify at the top of the willow here. They're calling in life saying, I'm ready to mate. Come hang out. Let's make a family. To remember that, to remember that spring, all those wildflowers, native and non, all of them, not all of them, some of them, most of them, created by pollinators as some by the wind, but most by pollinators. All those beautiful ephemerals that I'm seeing lately, all those spring flowers, the colt's foot, the trout lilies, the bloodroot, dandelions, hepatica, Some of the willows, maybe some of the maples, even the wild ginger, some of the cherries in Toronto and other places where it's warm enough for the cherries to be blossoming now. Man, they're, they're all there because of the pollinators that do the work of spring and if we ignore them, if we forget that they're there, if we ignore these other people that we're in community with, we ignore our own, we, we ignore our own lives, we ignore that we're, we're here too. It's powerful to remember that. to see what's happening on a global scale or a hemispheric scale right now coming into spring. There's another part of the book where Baptiste Morizot is out tracking wolves and he's hanging out with his friends and he's, and he's going through the mountains and they're out all day and they're not finding any sign of the wolves. And he's going out and he's 
looking for these signs and they don't find anything. They're getting to a little cabin at the end of the day. They're tired, they're exhausted. They're kind of feeling down because they haven't found any sign they've been looking for. And he attempts a little interspecies communication. He goes out and he attempts howling in an effort to call in the wolves. In an effort to bring them on over and say, hey, we're here, let's chat. Sort of like when you greet somebody when you come to their house. You know, say, hey, how's it going? You know? And they, 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 the wolves call back. And he's discussing this in a lot more detail than I'm going to do here. But he's discussing this call and response that happens four or five times with the wolves. Where they call and he calls and they call and he calls. Are they investigating? Are they aware? Do they know he's not a wolf? Why are they responding anyways if they do know that he's not a wolf? It's really awesome. I love this conversation. I think of like the wolf howls in Algonquin. I think of the coyotes here in Guelph. Eastern coyote, part wolf. That lineage they share. I had some questions about something he wrote. He writes, uh, once again I answer, as we're all silent, as if we're hunting or in a temple, and the pack retorts again. This time it's the cubs and a few adults, impossible to count. Then we all howl in chorus. No answer. Again, we sometimes hear the distant howl of an adult probably looking for a group, but the latter now fall silent. The wind turns and makes it difficult to determine the origin of the distant songs that sometimes reach us. The wolves gathered in front of us are no longer answering. The human beings, on the other hand, are in a state of silent exaltation. The howls gently took everyone outside themselves in an ancient wonder of bewilderment and gratitude. Standing by the stove, the mountain experts who had previously been discussing the shape of snowflakes or the merits of their skis stammer like children. And by a strange alchemy that I still don't understand, people thank each other as if we'd all given each other something. And then they laugh as they realize that none of us is the author of the gift. I suspect that this gratitude, one which cannot discover its source, which searches in vain for its recipient, is an unfortunate legacy of the monotheisms of our traditions, which have confined the idea of giving to that which is given voluntarily by an intentional God, so that the true daily gifts, the water which quenches thirst, the sun transformed into fruit, into a fruit for our flesh, the beauty of the swift and of the light translated into landscapes by our immemorial eyes, are things for which we no longer know who to thank. I want to question that too. I'm not sure if that's exactly the origin for me of, 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 this, of this unknown source of gratitude when we share something from a unnamed and maybe unmisunderstood giver. 
And maybe if I, if I knew more philosophy, I would understand it better. But I, I, maybe it's not even a question. Maybe it's just a reflection that, that I've been in moments like that. Where we've shared in gratitude for some ineffable or, or just some unknowable. Not unknowable in the highfalutin unknowable. But unknowable as in like I don't know where it comes from kind of way. Maybe I should just say unknown because maybe I could figure it out. But in these moments of, of, what does he say, gratitude and exaltation, or oh, bewilderment and gratitude, you know, in those moments of profound gratitude, I think that can be a gateway to that, to that new community building. You know, awe and wonder. They're foundations for, for, for community. You know, when someone shows you a magic, don't, don't you just want to figure it out? Don't you want to understand how it works? Don't you want to see how they do it? You want to ask them, do it again, do it again? We don't know something, and so we, we strive to know it. Our curiosity takes over. Sometimes we don't really want to know it. But we want to know more about, about it. Maybe we don't want to know how it's done, take away the magic, but we want to know more about it. Maybe we'll be able to replicate it ourselves. When we find mystery on the land and we're grateful for it, I think it can draw us to that place of asking more questions, drawing up more stories, trying to develop that understanding. I'm distracted that I have to do this show Whereas half the time I just want to figure out what the bird is up in the willow above me. I guess they've moved a little bit over to the poplars on the other side of the pond here. But I think this wonder and this gratitude can really draw us to places of deep connection. And it makes me wonder, like... It makes me wonder on wonder, like what, what, what are those keys? What are those things that we can inspire other people into wonder to bring something, to bring our attention to something, you know, and like, and to, 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 create, to create that community. Baptiste Morisot says a little bit later, in this shared emotion, there is something like reverent respect, curiosity and excitement. Welsh philosopher Martin Evans defines wonder as an altered, overwhelmingly heightened attention to something that we immediately recognize as important. Something the emergence of which engages our imaginations before our understanding, but which we will probably want to understand more fully over time. And that wonder pulls us in. That curiosity drags us. And, and it, it, it's, it tickles your, your, the back of your brain. You're always wondering about it. Little, be, little mysteries that you don't solve maybe when you're out on the land for a couple of years. And every time something comes up, you're like, well, there was this one time I found this thing. I still don't know what it is. For me, that was with the crayfish gastrolis. Or with the, what are they called? 
ginkgo biloba seeds that I found in some coyote scat a few years ago. I think that one took, what was it, eight years? There's a blog post on the website, tonowtheland.com. If you can read about it, I think it's eight years that it took me to figure out what that was. Maybe maybe less. Maybe it was four. I can't remember. Whatever. But what it was is that that mystery stuck with me. And and it 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 pokes me every time I see a coyote scat, especially in that same spot. I'm like, am I gonna find those seeds again? What on earth are those seeds? And every time you get a book that might have a mention of a seed or a photograph, you're like, okay, I gotta find this other seed that I'm here in the first place for. But then there's also that secondary seed that stumped me so while so long ago. And it's always sort of teasing me, teasing me to know more, to deepen that relationship. I think exposing ourselves to the wonder of the land can obviously uh, deepen, deepen ourselves to that relationship. Sorry if I'm rambling. I'm just thinking about thinking about this book. One one of the great things about this book and about Baptiste's work overall is it's getting me thinking about things that I don't normally do, or in a way that I don't normally do. It's challenging me in that regard, but it's challenge in a good way, right? To perceive more, to understand more to observe more and to ask more questions on my own. And maybe that's what a good teacher, and that's that's what he's a teacher, he's a philosophy teacher. So maybe that's what a good teacher does. Stokes your fire a little bit. Again, the book's called Ways of Being Alive. It's by Baptiste Morizot. It's on Polity Books. You can check it out, politybooks.com. I'm going to leave the sounds of this little ephemeral wetland. Maybe we can hear what the wind and the willow, and the toad and the goldfinch have to say. Maybe they've got some insight in how to be good neighbors that would be worthwhile listening to.
Thanks for listening to the show. You can always learn more about the show by checking out the website, toknowtheland.com. You can email me, toknowtheland at gmail.com if you have any questions, feedback, show ideas, whatever. There's usually new shows. It turns out it's actually about every other week now. Online, Mondays at 6 a.m. on CFRU at the University of Guelph at 6 p.m. If the show inspires you, you can go to the website to knowland.com forward slash donate. The website, the time it takes to produce a show, the time I take off work to do it, the recorder that I'm using, the software I use to to edit the show, that all costs money. It's a labor of love, but you know, sometimes it it helps to get some support in paying for those things. Hopefully it drives towards a better show. It's just nice to contribute to things that you appreciate. So if you do appreciate, if you are inspired, check out that that page, toknowtheland.com forward slash donate. Anything helps. Thank you very much. Take care.